This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The Justice Department says it's seeking a domestic terrorism enhancement to the sentencing of the first convicted January 6th rioter. It's the first time the department has made that argument. The January 6th hearings are showing the public the role former President Trump played. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Those hearings and other insurrection investigations are also showing us something extremist experts have warned about for years, that far-right extremism is prolific and increasingly violent. Before January 6, 2021, there was an act of domestic terrorism that happened here in our own backyard. It was the night of May 29, 2020. Four days earlier, George Floyd had been murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. The city of Oakland was protesting, like other cities across the country. Among the crowds and the chants, a federal building guard in downtown Oakland was shot and killed. It was later discovered that the killer was a man named Stephen Carrillo. He was a member of a far-right, anti-government group called the Boogaloo Boys. Carrillo wanted to sow chaos and to undermine the First Amendment rights of protesters. Since spring 2020, the FBI has reported that the Bureau's domestic terrorism caseload has more than doubled from 1,000 to 2,700 investigations. Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle reporter Joshua Sharp is here to break down the killing that happened more than two years ago and how extremists like Carrillo are using social media and the internet to nurture their ideologies. He'll also discuss why the prosecution of Carrillo is significant for future domestic terrorism cases. Joshua, great to have you on Fifth Emission. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about a very clear case of domestic terrorism, the murder of a federal guard in Oakland in 2020. People have been concerned about domestic terrorism and extremism for a long time now, including the Boogaloo Group. How are they different than the Proud Boys, which some may already be familiar with? So the Boogaloo Group, uh, they sometimes call themselves Boogaloo Boys, B-O-I-S. Uh, the big difference is they are not considered by the Southern Poverty Law Center to be a hate group, as the Proud Boys are. While there are white supremacists in the ranks of Boogaloo Boys, there are many who are not, according to researchers. And the ideology that they have is really seems to be very scattered, and a lot of it involves meme culture and jokes, you know, obviously really poor jokes about killing police and things like this. But... They also can be easy to dismiss. Um, they, they go to protests carrying huge guns and things like that, but they go wearing Hawaiian shirts. The reason they go wearing Hawaiian shirts is because the word boogaloo sounds a bit to them like big luau, and at a big luau, you might have a pig roast. And a pig is another word for a police officer, obviously. The word boogaloo also uh, stems from the 1984 uh, breakdancing movie called Breakin' 2, 
electric boogaloo. And the Boogaloo Boys came up with this idea, uh, Civil War II, electric boogaloo, because that is what they're after. They want to start a second civil war. They want to see the U.S. government overthrown, and they want to be on the front lines doing it. Hmm. And what's their ultimate goal? Why focus on killing law enforcement, for example? Their belief, while it may uh, vary a lot from person to person and sect to sect, uh, their broad belief is that the police are agents of a corrupt government that, that should be overthrown. Hmm. They particularly seem to focus on federal agents. Okay, so let's talk about Stephen Carrillo. He's the focus of your story. He became involved in the Boogaloo group that you're describing and ultimately killed a federal security guard in Oakland in 2020. Before we get into the details, I want to understand, because this is all pretty sensitive information, how did you report this story? So the reporting is really just pretty old school reporting. Um, it, it is heavily based on court records that are in the federal court record. The way I look at court records sometimes is they're all scattered about. Um, they don't mean much. But if you can put them all together and glean this detail, that de detail, and create a timeline, you can put a full picture of the story together. And because this was such a terrible event and a huge news event here in the Bay Area uh, two years ago, I wanted to go back and be able to, in as much detail as possible, tell people what really went down. And so who was Stephen Correa? What was his background and the life experiences that led him towards the Boogaloos? Stephen Correa was a 30-year-old sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. He'd been in the service for 12 years. He had tours across the Middle East. His defense attorney, James Thompson, who declined to comment for this story, Thompson implied in court that something happened on Carrillo's last deployment, which was to Kuwait, that changed things for Carrillo personally somehow. Also, mm -hmm. in 2018, Carrillo's wife died by suicide, according to the defense attorney. Carrillo blamed himself for this, the attorney says, and had his own failed attempts at, at ending his life. And the defense attorney describes him in this period as searching for connection, and he found it on Facebook. Tell me more about how Facebook serves as a platform for this kind of ideology to really grow and be nurtured. So Facebook would say that they uh, have gotten much, much better at this. Uh, they're working very hard to, to uh, tamp down the Boogaloo movement. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you search for Boogaloo on Facebook, you'll get warnings and, and things like that now. But back then, they had a much bigger problem. There were a number of Boogaloo pages and groups on Facebook. One of them was called California Commando. And this is where Carrillo would meet the men that he would join a Boogaloo militia with. And that militia was called the Grizzly Scouts. And they really sort of sprung into action after the murder of George Floyd. Why is that? Obviously, the murder of George Floyd was this, this historic event for so many reasons. And one of the reasons is that the Boogaloo Boys saw this, some of them, as an opportunity to use the massive protests that were going on across the country to sow chaos. And so, some of them had the idea to kill law enforcement and try to have it blamed on uh, protesters by committing a murder at the protest. And Stephen Carrillo also had this idea. He was one of the Boogaloo Boys who had that idea. So Carrillo was on Facebook talking to other like-minded people. 
what did Carrillo's internet activity reveal leading up to that Oakland shooting on May 29th, 2020? So that morning, that very morning, uh, he has already heard about the Oakland Black Lives Matter protest that is planned. He's on Facebook and he writes, uh, he's, he's telegraphing his plans to use protesters as foils for what he's going to do. He says, quote, go to the riots and support our own cause. Use their anger to fuel our fire. So essentially what he's saying here, Joshua, is that they want to do something that would pit the police against certain groups like supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. Is that right? Exactly. And obviously get away with the murder as well. Right. So walk me through the night of the shooting. What did Carrillo and the others plan? It's still unclear to what extent the others knew anything about what he planned in Oakland or if they did, except for one man who has admitted to uh, driving Carrillo to Oakland. And that was a man named Robert Justice. He says that he was under duress uh, when he drove Carrillo to Oakland because Carrillo was heavily armed on the night of May 29, 2020. They drive to downtown Oakland next to the federal building, and Black Lives Matter protests have been moving around downtown Oakland all day and all night. And at this moment, Carrillo and Justice pull up in a van. Justice is driving. They park cut the lights. Surveillance video shows that Justice gets out of the van, walks around a while, and then comes back and gets in the van. And then the van cranks up, the lights turn on, and Justice presses the gas. And suddenly he's headed toward the guard shack. The FBI says this white van pulled up to the building near a guard shelter, and one of its passengers started firing. Carrillo is in the back of the van, and he opens the sliding door and spews 19 rounds from an AR-15 style rifle, striking two guards who were in the guard shack at the time. One of them would pass away. Mm. Tell me more about that man that passed away, uh, David Patrick Underwood. Who was he? He was a 53-year-old man from Penole. He was a very active community volunteer. He was beloved by his family. They said that that day he left home happy. Uh, One interesting detail that I learned from a friend of his was that he actually did not work at the Oakland courthouse. He normally worked Mm. in Marin County. Uh, So this was a situation where he wasn't really supposed to be there that day. After a quick break, Joshua Sharp will talk about how Stephen Carrillo was found and how he and other Grizzly Scouts were prosecuted. Also, he'll discuss what experts say extremist groups are planning now. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Okay, so Joshua Sharp, before the break, you detailed the shooting of a federal security guard, David Patrick Underwood, during an Oakland Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. The killer was Boogaloo member Stephen Carrillo, who was trying to make it look like protesters were responsible for the shooting. Were his plans initially successful? Well, it certainly seems that suspicions were raised that 
Black Lives Matter protesters could have been involved. The next day, officials declined to rule out that possibility. From a department standpoint, we are interested in any and all groups, any and all groups that are taking advantage of what could be a peaceful protest and turning that into something that that's very different. Um, and that's what we're seeing across the country. So they certainly were not ruling it out. But within days, it would become pretty clear that this did not have to do with the protesters. So ultimately, how did Carrillo get caught? How did they discover that this was part of a Boogaloo objective? About a week after the Oakland shooting, a van, or excuse me, about a week after the Oakland shooting, the van that they had taken to Oakland turns up in Santa Cruz County, which is where Carrillo lived. And then Carrillo finds out, it's not not totally clear how exactly he finds out that sheriff's deputies are on their way to his home. And he is waiting for them there, allegedly armed with his uh, AR-15 style rifle. When they get there, he allegedly opens fire on them. They return fire. They hear an explosion. Creo in the shooting was apparently shot in the hip. A Santa Cruz County Sheriff's deputy named Damon Gutzweiler, who was 38 years old, would die from his injuries. Carrillo flees, carjacks someone. That car is later found on the side of the road. Carrillo is also found on the side of the road. He's, he's bleeding from the hip. He's apparently been shot in the confrontation. And on the hood of the Toyota Camry, the sheriff's deputies noticed that he had allegedly scrawled a message in blood. The message was, I became unreasonable, Boog. So Carrillo is seemingly responsible for two men's deaths. He ultimately pleads guilty in court for the murder of Underwood. What about the other guy? So in that case, it's still pending. He, he has pleaded not guilty in that case. He's facing a variety of charges, murder and uh, various counts of attempted murder as well. But, but he did plead guilty in the federal case and he has been sentenced to 41 years in prison. So now what's happened with the other Grizzly Scout members at this point? So the other members, the ones who ended up being indicted, for allegedly destroying evidence. Um, three of them have pleaded guilty and were sentenced to six months in prison. In Santa Cruz County, when Carrillo was waiting for the sheriff's deputies, he told the Grizzly Scout group chat, quote, dudes, I off to fed. After this, Grizzly Scout members start to panic and trying to delete that comment from from their phones and as well as information that they knew each other. To my understanding, Joshua, the Grizzly Scout members' defense sounds very similar to what January 6th Capitol insurrectionists are saying right now in the hearings that they were radicalized and misinformed by social media. How did the judge in the Grizzly Scout cases respond to that? Well, the judge... At least in the case of Stephen Carrillo, seemed to think that it was a, a legitimate factor in what happened to him. Um, not she wasn't excusing it certainly, but she described what happened to him as a perfect storm of misfortune and mental illness. The Boogaloo Boys, the Grizzly Scouts, was there for him at the worst possible moment, and that is why she agreed to accept the forty-one year prison term because initially she wasn't sure if that would be long enough in her view. Mm. We know that domestic terrorism is a real problem. People are probably watching this case pretty carefully. How are the prosecutions of Carrillo and the Grizzly Scouts 
potentially consequential for other domestic terrorist cases in the future? One thing about this case that experts told me was was important was that there were these co-defendants of Korea um, who were charged and were sentenced to six months in federal prison. And uh, what one expert told me is that this sends a message that if you're going to be involved in this kind of uh, organization whose premise is fantasy about, uh, about terrible violence and you're going to enable other members, then there are consequences for that. For your story, you spoke to Errol Southers. He's a former deputy director of the California Office of Homeland Security. Let's take a listen to what he had to say about what extremist groups are thinking about now. I think the most important thing is pay attention to the midterm elections. They're, they're being guided. There's, there's certain goalposts that they have along the way. So you had the 2020 election. Then you had January 6th, which in their minds is being touted as Independence Day. Now what you're looking at is the 2022 midterms. And don't think for a second they're not watching the January 6th hearings because they are. So, Joshua, this is pretty frightening stuff, especially as we look ahead to the midterms. How is this problem being tackled? I mean, we know the Internet is a breeding ground for a lot of this extremism. Well, social media platforms are really having to step up their game when it comes to taking down content uh, by these um, groups. A January report by the tech watchdog group Tech Transparency Project slammed Facebook, calling it basically, as you say, a breeding ground for anti-government extremist groups like the Three Percenters. The report said that militias were even promoting their content and running ads on Facebook. So Facebook says, they gave me some raw numbers, they say as of September 2021, uh, they've banned 1,000 militarized social movements, is, that's their term, and removed 4,000 pages, uh, 20,000 groups, 190 event pages, nearly 55,000 Facebook profiles. And the direct quote they gave me, uh, they said, quote, this is an adversarial space, and we know that our work to protect our platforms and the people who use them from these threats never ends. However, we believe that our work has helped make it harder for harmful groups to organize on our platforms. I guess we'll see. Mm. One thing that really stood out to me that FBI Director Christopher Wray said back in September was from spring of 2020 to September 2021, the FBI's domestic terrorism caseload ballooned from 1,000 to 2,700 investigations. It, it is certainly, the, the, the Korea case, if it's anything, is a stark reminder of resurgent far-right-wing uh, domestic violence in America. Mm. Joshua, a very important story. Thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Joshua Sharp covers criminal justice for The Chronicle. His story about the Stephen Carrillo case and far-right extremism is online now at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. Thank you to King Kaufman and Gary Baca for the production help and to you for listening. <laughs> 